about it here. If you don't know the Lord and you think this hot, all right. So um, my prayer is that we will be able to um, hear from the Lord today. So we are still working through the book of Romans and we're all the way up to Romans 9. If you notice that I said the title of today's sermon is The God That They Don't Tell You About. And the reason why this is the title for today's sermon is because it's just the reality. It's the God that we don't learn about. There is the God of the Bible, but then there's the God that everybody wants to believe exists. Now, the God of the Bible is the true God, the living God, the real God, the actual God, the God from the beginning of the time that before we could conceive him to begin, he was already in existence. He has no beginning. Therefore, he has no end. And that's the true God. But there is a God that many of us would prefer to believe in. I think something interesting happened these last few days in Birmingham. I think we were all aware of it as we watched where this young woman went missing. And all I saw on my timeline is people who I had never really seen mention God before were saying, pray, let's pray, let's pray that whatever the situation is, it's changed, it's turned. And then those same people today are convinced that she did something sorted. Regardless, one thing I've realized is when all those people were saying pray, pray that God changed the situation, and then the situation changed, it helped me realize you don't really believe in a God that is sovereign. You don't really believe in a God who is actually in control. You don't really believe in a God who does answer and responds and works through prayer. You believe in a God that does what you want him to do when you need him to do it. And if he can't do that, you prefer to have a God that just leaves you alone. And so even the atheists have this thing. They say, well, I can't believe in a God that does this, which means I can't have an idea of what I think God should be. But God fails to meet my expectation. Therefore, if the God of the Bible doesn't look like or sound like what I think he should, then I reject him. What kind of God is this? This is a God that is peddled to us, the God that moves at our every whim, the God that does what we want him to do, that responds the way that we want him to respond, that favors us specifically, that is looking at me and he thinks I'm special. It's why I hate on social media when I see those people who say, God, don't play about me. You, you ain't God's special person. God did not pick you and create you specifically for his goodness and all of his things. God may work through you, but God didn't center the world around you. And that's what we're actually learning today in this text from Romans 9. A lot of people will say that it means a lot of things, but it ultimately means that God does not play favorites. And so we're going to go to it today in Romans 9. We're going to start at the sixth verse where we left off last week. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. and Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are count who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What can we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he decides and he hardens whom he decides. Now you'll say, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? Will what is molded say to his molder? Why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump a vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels prepared for destruction in order that he may make known the riches of his glory and vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to um, expedite our way through this sermon, God, one, I pray um, for my peace of mind that you would allow me to focus on the word, not be frustrated or distracted by things that are going on, but God, that I would be able to preach clearly in a, in a way that honors and glorifies you, God, and just believe and trust that even in the most difficult circumstances that you work and will all things for your good pleasure. So I trust you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we see Paul is immediately clearing something up for us that he has already mentioned, and he says it like this. He says, y'all, the word of God has not failed. And I could preach an entire sermon on that, and I promise I won't, but I will at least take a second to acknowledge this fact. This is an encouragement for us. When he said that the word of God has not failed, what he is saying is the word of God has not failed, the word of God is not failing, and the word of God will not fail. And that means for all of us that the word of God on its own is this infallible truth. It is inerrant. There is not a single thing that God has ever spoken in eternity that did not come into existence. The reason why that is specifically important, because a lot of us want to believe that the word of God will not fail when it pertains to good things that will happen to us. If God has said, you will live and not die. See, we want to believe that the word of God will not fail unless it's the word that came to Hezekiah that says, oh, actually, you're not going to live, but you will die. Then we want the word of God to fail. We want the plan of God to fail. If I knew it was God's plan today not to have his outwork, and I would have said, God, that ain't in the plan. That ain't the right plan, God. But this is the thing that we all are going to have to, at some point in our lives, wrap our heads around that we're going to have to grasp about God. There is nothing good or bad, no matter what the plan is, that I can do to stop the will of God. 
But it also means there is nothing good or bad that will happen that anybody can do to stop the will, the plan, and the word of God. And depending on where you are in your life, this is either an encouragement or it's scary. The word of God is the only truth. And let me tell you why I say it's scary. When you're poor, of course you want God's word to be true and to trump and to be powerful. Of course you want God to be all-knowing and all-moving. Of course you want God to move even in ways you don't expect. That's what you want when you're poor, but when you're rich. You don't really want a sovereign God when you're rich because the reality is he could take it away. When you're healthy, you don't want God to be sovereign. It's only when you're sick that you want God to be in control. It's only if you get a response from the doctors that is not favorable. You say, but no, I'm trusting the word of the Lord, not what the doctor says. But if you get a good report, you say, well, I'm trusting what that doctor says. The reality is, is that there are many inconvenient times when God's sovereignty for us will rear his ugly head. And some of the things that I've learned is the reason most of us have an idea about God that isn't real is because either we have said that God said stuff that he never said, or we are misunderstanding the things that God said. In this particular text, Paul knows what the scriptures actually says. The word came to Abraham in you. All the nations of the world will be blessed. All people of all generations through Abraham would be blessed. But you know what the Israelites heard? Through Israel will all of Israel be blessed. And it became so. It is just like the rich and the powerful who think that the word of God is specifically about them, but not about the other people. And so this is reminds them of. He said that the real children of Abraham didn't all come from Abraham. The true children of Abraham were born to him by a promise, not by blood. And this was referring back to what we talked about in that adoption sermon. None of us were born Israelite or Jewish, but we were adopted according to this promise. But Paul has given him this reminder, too, and I think we all need this reminder as well. When God chose Israel, he didn't choose Israel because Israel deserved to be chosen. And that's the point. Israel, you weren't strong. You weren't mighty. You weren't faithful. I chose you despite who you were. What is Paul's big message? For all of us who are saved, for all of us who are Christians, it ain't that we got it right. It ain't that we made the right decision on the right day, that we were living the right perspective, that we were born into the right family. It is this. God chose any of us who are saved not because of our works. He chose us in spite of our works. He chose us in spite of who we were, in in spite of what he saw about us. 
And y'all, that is the God that I promise you, many people do not want. They want the God that picks them because they're special, because they're unique, because they're gifted. But I hate to break some news to you. You're not the center of God's world. I'm not the center of the world. God is the center of all that happens. What people really want is they want a God that they can control, a God they can direct, a God that they can beckon, a God that they can make move when they want him to move. But a God who responds only to man is no God at all. No, you didn't get that job because you were special. You didn't get that job because you were the most qualified. You got that job because of God's providence. You got that job because of God's goodness. And so to make this clear, Paul uses one of the most discomforting references, passages in Scripture that you will ever see, y'all. He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that statement carries such an uncomfortable reality for many of us. First of all, you have to reconcile with this. God hates. He hated Esau and he loved Jacob. What kind of God is this? This is not the God that I was taught about in Sunday school. This is not the God I learned about when I went to VBS. What kind of God loves some but hates others? That's not the God that I know. But if we go even further, that isn't a God that most people would understand. And look, that's not even his point. Look at the whole statement. It says Esau and Jacob were not even born yet, and yet God chose Jacob instead of choosing Esau. Now, some people will falsely tell you, yeah, he ended up choosing Jacob because Jacob would go on to be a better person. But that's not true, because even if God chose him because of that, he is still showing favoritism. And that means that God is unfair and God is unjust because before they did anything, God looked out and he saw who Jacob would become and he chose him. That would mean Esau never stood a chance. And I think the problem is most of us want a favoring God only when we're Jacob. I want to be favored. I want to be special. I want to be picked because of who I am and my characteristics. But what if you Esau? What if you're the one that God doesn't choose because you didn't have the right characteristics or the right qualities or you were the wrong gender or the wrong race? The God of favoritism doesn't fly. And I think that's Paul's big point. But it's also this. However powerful you thought God was, he's more powerful than that. Why didn't he just wait for Esau and Jacob to grow up and then after they grew up and they did some stuff good or bad, pick one who was better? Because it is that overwhelming message that Peter gets after he realizes this truth. 
He says, I now realize there is no partiality with God. God is not choosing some of us because we're better. And that's scary because Jesus' message to the Pharisees should be a reminder to all of us. If you think that you are healthy, if you think that you are wealthy, if you think that you are right, if you think that you are good enough on your own, that there is no wrong in you, Jesus actually says, you're just the type of person I didn't come for. You know why? He said, you don't think you're sick. I know you're sick, but you don't think you're sick. You think you're healthy. You know what Jesus tells them? He says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. What does he mean by that? It is not until we realize that all of us are sick with the disease of sin that we can actually come to him. But you know, this news that God shows no partiality is great to us. Because it means that God doesn't favor the white. He doesn't favor the black. He doesn't favor the rich or the poor or the strong or the weak. Everybody and everything is moved by the grace of God. And so Paul knows the question that is coming. He says, and you're going to hear all this and you're going to ask me, is God unjust? And he says, no. Because God said that he will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He'll have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. What part of that makes God impartial? Why would his impartiality make him unjust? No, it wouldn't. Think about this. If someone told you they didn't hire you because you were black or white or female or male, We would all scream crime, prejudice, injustice, and probably rightfully so. But what if that same job told you that, hey, we only hired you because you were black? Or we only hired you because you were white or female or male? Then you would say, well, what is my value? I don't really even bring anything to the table as far as you're concerned. I just look the right way. So why would we want that out of God, y'all? Why do we want a God that is favoring us specifically because of our giftings and our talents? I don't think we really do. I don't think we really want a God who says, I will pick you the way that you pick people. Because all of us know if we wanted a God who picked us, the same way we pick people, then inevitably what would happen is none of us would be picked. None of us would be chosen. And true injustice says, I favor some over others. But God reminds us that he looks on the heart as we look on the outward and to answer That there is no injustice. Paul says God has mercy on whom he chooses. And that choice alone belongs to him. 
He says, and I did that so that you wouldn't think that you are who you are. You got where you got because of your human will or your effort. And so the question is, how are we saved if we're not the responsible parties for our salvation? This is a struggle, and I've had many conversations with people who says, that doesn't make sense. I know I picked God. I chose God. Therefore, I'm responsible. But you, you didn't. And I know you think that this is a logical fallacy, but let me help you understand this. I remember when I planted some sunflower seeds, I'd ask my dad, like, all right, what I need to do? What I need to do to make sure they grow. You just like water them, make sure they don't get burned, but you got to make sure they get enough water. You got to actually take care of them. So that's what I did. I went out, planted them, put them in the ground. I was coming out there watering, making sure that him and RJ wouldn't cut them down when they were growing up. So I had to make sure it would actually grow. And eventually it did. And I believe those things got up to like four feet tall. Now, if I ask you, who was responsible for that sunflower growing? And you said, well, the sunflower. I would ask you how. You said, well, it responded to what you did. Right. It could only respond to what I was already doing. But who was responsible for making it grow? If all we do is respond to what God is doing in our lives, who's a responsible party for our salvation? Him. I didn't plant myself in the right garden. I didn't make sure I got enough light. I didn't make sure I got enough nourishment. God did all of that. And the only thing that we have done as believers is respond to the grace of God. And that means that we are not the responsible parties in our salvation. And that's Paul's point. God, by the nature of him being God, has called some of us. He has chosen some of us and he has saved some of us by his grace. And so the hang up for us should not be, why didn't God save so and so? The hang up is, the hang up is, why did God choose me? I wrestle with that. I stay awake late at night ruminating about all the decisions that I made, that some of my friends made, all the wrong turns I took, that some of my friends took. And instead of feeling arrogance, I think I feel survivor's remorse. Because God had a grace and a mercy and a compassion on me. Some of them are in the grave. I don't feel arrogance. I don't feel pride. I feel small. Because I know I didn't do anything right to get this. 
That's like a person who passes a multiple choice test, not because they know the answers. They just guess right. There shouldn't be no pride in that. Same way with us and our salvation. And the truth is this. If any of us and all of us so far have, for now, that's the mercy of God, that's the compassion of God. If any of us have escaped the judgment of God, the only reason that God shows us that mercy and compassion is because of his will. Y'all know there is no need to have a power struggle with God, all right? Our, our arms are simply too short to box with God. Our minds are too finite. But the whole point is this. Man doesn't run a thing God does. So is the problem that God is in control or is the problem that we aren't? I think ultimately that's the issue is that we are not in control. And see, we want God to be in control only when we need him to be in control. But that's just not who God is. And you have to understand this. In the beginning, Adam and Eve's one desire was for God not to be in control, but for them to be in control. And that's what they wanted. But the question is, do you realize what control actually takes? Do you realize what power actually requires of you? Think about how you felt about your house growing up in a child when somebody else was running it. And then think about what you had to do to run your own house. I had to get up, had to go to work, had to make some money, couldn't spend stuff the way I wanted to, had to spend stuff the way I had to and needed to. Real power and real control means submission. And for us, that means a submission to the one who is actually in control. And it boils down to this as I close. He says, who are you to answer back to God? And nobody wants to hear this because it makes you feel small. And we are incredibly small when we are compared to God. But you know what gives us significance? You know what's beautiful about us being so small in comparison to God? It is what God has done to pursue us. In Christ, y'all, he bridges the gap. And instead of saying, you do the impossible and you Small man try to come up to me, big God. You know what he's done? That big God, y'all, that big God, that insurmountable God comes down to small man. And he did what we could not do. He said, since you can't come to me, I will come to you so that you can actually come to me. And how do we come to him? A little reminder 
that I need. He says, all of you, every single one of you who are laboring, every single one of you who are burdened down with life, with your own struggles of sin, every single one of you who is struggling to fight to keep up in life, every single one of you who is living in conflict with people you love because of your sin, every single one of you, come to me, all of you who are burdened. Come to me, all of you who are laboring, And he says, yeah, I'm going to put a yoke on you, and I am going to put a burden on you, but you know what? My yoke is easy, and my burden, my burden is light. He says, if you come to me, I will give you rest. You think you can't rest in a sovereign God, but let me tell you how you can't rest. You can't rest if you truly believe everything that's going to happen in your life is going to happen because of you. You ain't going to rest. You're not going to rest. I'm telling you right now, I'm being real honest, I'm going to have to struggle not to think about this air. That's just true. I'm going to have to struggle to think about how we're going to afford it, how we're going to do this. I'm going to have to fight that desire. But at the end of the day, the only thing that is going to allow me to rest about this or about that or about that, I'm not in control. I don't have any power, any expertise, any wisdom to do all the things that my life requires, let alone wake myself up this morning. I look into the world and I see all of the death and the murder and the violence that we have seen just in Birmingham, all of the grief, all of the losses. And I realize I have no control over that not being me. I can try to make right decisions. I can try to be where I'm supposed to be. But at the end of the day, I am at the mercy of God. And this is what I want to leave you with. The power of Jesus, the sovereign will of God, And the work to bring us to him, to do what we couldn't do, to remove our burden of sin, we don't have the power to do it. And when he talks about us being pots, being clay, the reality becomes clear for all of us. You and me and all of us are but a ball of clay in the hands of our great potter. So that means that I'm I'm actually not God, but I belong to God. So the reminder is that I'm not in control. I didn't decide my race. I didn't decide my gender. I didn't decide my gifts. I didn't decide my motivations. 
I didn't decide when I was going to be born, to whom I was going to be born. I didn't decide any of that stuff. And so if I couldn't decide and will myself to do all that, then that means every day I get up, I know that my life is in the hands of a worthy potter. And there are times where we may not like the direction that we're being shaped. But my encouragement to you is he's just not finished. God is just not finished. And I know you get frustrated with your sins. Maybe you get frustrated that you aren't further in life than you thought you would be. But he's still molding you. Don't listen to the world. The world will tell you, oh, if, if by this age you should have been or you should be thinking about this or you should be doing this. You are in the capable hands of a loving and good God. And he is molding you into this image of himself that at the end of the day will be beautiful. No, this is not necessarily the God that you are told about, but this is the God of the Bible. The only God that can truly take what was hideous in our lives and make it beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for your presence. It is amazing how even in the midst of our struggles and difficulties and circumstances, we don't expect how you work and will your way through. How you, in the things that we wouldn't have done, you work your power and your majesty and just remind us who's in control. So God, I pray that as we have heard this sermon, we are reminded inevitably that we are not in control that you are in control of everything that happens. And yeah, our decisions matter. And we want to make the right ones. But even when we do make the right decision, we have to trust that you are the great harvester. And when we make the wrong decisions, we have to trust that you are sovereign, you are God, and you are on the throne. God, there are people in this room who don't know you. And they don't see themselves the way you see them. And God, that's the struggle we all experience. And so my prayer is that for the people here who may not know you, who may in the depths of their heart rebel against you, God, I pray that they would see themselves truly and also see you with unveiled eyes. God, help us trust in the true God of the Bible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.